Welcome to The Dirt, where we discuss all things related to the environment and environmental justice, often with a focus on North Carolina. As always, we have a great show for you today. Coming shortly, you're going to hear from Kaji Reyes with the North Carolina League of Conservation Voters. He sat down to talk with us about the organization's Power Up campaign, which if you haven't heard of what they're doing, it's really exciting stuff. They're working on moving the state further towards sustainable energy and away from fossil fuels. But their focus is on making this transition by first centering issues of economic and racial justice. We all know we have to move past dirty energy in this country, but it is absolutely crucial that we push forward into the future without leaving anyone behind. And they're doing some great work to lower energy bills in low-income communities and to provide folks with the skill set they need to get into the professional space where they can do the same thing for other people. So uh, we're going to talk with him a little bit about what they're doing. It's really great stuff. And for those who missed it, we sat down with North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein last month for a lengthy, wide-ranging interview. You're going to hear some of that later on as well. But first, I want to wish you all a belated Thanksgiving. I know that I'm thankful to everyone tuning in live today and for everyone downloading our podcast each month, which you can find on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, If you're like me, you probably spent a good portion of the past weekend digesting a lot of turkey. Um, North Carolina, in fact, was ranked number two in the country for turkey production in 2016. Fun fact for you, 33.5 million turkeys, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. If you're wondering, Minnesota is number one with 44.5 million turkeys. Uh, North Carolina also produces a lot of chickens. Uh, I think we're ranked number three nationally in total poultry production. So uh, we wanted to take a look at how those birds are produced and why there are so many poultry facilities popping up today in North Carolina. Here is a little bit of what we found. Across the South, there has been a quiet invasion taking place over the past 20, 40 years. In parts of Midwestern North Carolina, lands that were once dotted with groves of oak and pine trees are now covered with flattened patches of land on which you'll find rows of massive windowless metal hangars. And they've appeared in rural counties of the eastern Piedmont as well and on the coastal plains. And the appearance of these buildings is unsettling. Often they arrive with little to no notice, and few have ever actually been inside of these structures. But once they kick into gear, there's no question about what these buildings are. Chicken factories. They're industrial poultry operations, often called CAFOs, which is short for Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations. And their prolific expansion across North Carolina has left neighbors feeling concerned and helpless. So we traveled to Surrey County in the shadow of iconic Pilot Mountain and caught up with one family who's experienced living next to one of these facilities for years. My name is Terry Marshall. I uh, have lived for the last 32, 33 years in the uh, small community of Shoals, North Carolina. Uh, Very beautiful, peaceful rural area. Um, Approximately four years ago, uh, property was sold and uh, basically leveled, uh, and um, they they built chicken, what they call CAFOs, large chicken houses housing housing thousands and thousands of chickens, and uh, they come in uh, to the area with no fanfare, no warning, no nothing. They just uh, tore the trees out, cleared the land. 
and started building uh, chicken houses, unfortunately very close to my home. Marshall did not mince words when describing the living conditions near the facilities. Though unpleasant, to say the least, okay? Though uh, they stink, they smell, um, they ruin the neighborhoods, uh, those pollution issues, those health issues, those uh, property value issues, those, those many things that they affect. It's, a, it's almost like a thick taste smell, a, a smell that would get to the back of your throat and just kinda, kind of hang there. Okay, now, you know, besides, <clears throat> besides just chicken manure, uh, it's mixed in with dead chickens. They go through these buildings twice a day and pick out the dead chickens. And they just basically go out and throw them in the compost pile and dead chickens rot with the compost. And uh, so that's, that's part of your smell too. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a small, it, it's just a rotting, rotting smell. It's one of those, uh, one of those things you, you get up in the morning and if you thought you was gonna go out on your back deck and have a cup of coffee, no, that's not gonna happen. And if you thought you was gonna go out in the evening and cook on your gas grill on the back deck, Good luck. You might and you might not. I have, I have started my grill sometimes to cook, uh, cook some meat on hamburger or whatever, and it was fine. Started to grill up, went inside, come out five minutes later, and it's there. Marshall and his neighbors attended county meetings and attempted to get the attention of local officials who might be able to address the problems the poultry facilities were causing. One problem they found was that no one knew for sure where all the facilities even were. Tried to organize the neighborhood and get everybody involved and everything like that. We contacted the Riverkeeper, uh, looking for a, a little bit of guidance, so to speak, as to nobody had ever done anything like this before. But, yeah. uh, but anyway, the Riverkeeper was uh, contacted, and they was gracious enough to come out and, and sit in with a couple of our meetings. And uh, of course, the subject came up about Nobody knows where they're at, how many they are, or anything like that. And uh, so the riverkeeper took it upon themselves to investigate that on their own. And they spent, I have no idea how many, how many man hours, a lot, uh, scouting the county, the surrounding counties, so by, by airplane, by ground, just every way they could. Uh, they located, and again, government didn't know, didn't care wouldn't tell us anything they didn't know so uh the riverkeeper has been been very very helpful and very supportive trying to fight these CAFOs if it wasn't for them we still wouldn't wouldn't have a count still wouldn't have any ideas as to to where or how many so uh back in 2013 and 2014 we had some complaints from folks in our watershed up near Pilot Mountain State Park uh, about a poultry facility that was being constructed in the middle of this existing residential area that was Will Scott, riverkeeper for the Yadkin River Basin. His organization and others like it around the state have been investigating these pop-up chicken factories for years. We realized that uh, we didn't know where all these facilities were, um, despite the fact that most of them have at least 30,000 birds, usually somewhere between 30 to 120,000 birds uh, and up. And so we, make, we do, do regular overflights with south wings. So we use that and we also use GIS uh, satellite imagery to try to put together a database of all the active poultry facilities in our watershed. Um, and that became a statewide effort that we, where we worked with an environmental working group to map all these facilities that the state 
did not have its own list of the state environmental agency. I wondered why nonprofit environmental groups were taking on this task. Shouldn't this be a job for the state's environmental agency or even the federal EPA? There was a, a big legal fight back in the 2000s where the EPA attempted to bring poultry facilities under the Clean Water Act, the same way that cattle or, or swine facilities of a certain size are. Um, the industry beat that back, and what that meant is that these facilities don't have Clean Water Act permits, which means that our environmental agency um, doesn't keep tabs on them and does not even know where all of them are. There's no permit required when they're constructed other than an electrical hookup from the county. So neighbors essentially have no input when one of these is going up. They just sort of find out it's happening and they can't really stop it. Okay, so we know kind of where some of these facilities are located, but they keep popping up with no notice. So where the next one might be is anyone's guess. And we know they're a nuisance to neighbors and probably a health hazard to those nearby as well. But what other dangers do they pose? If you look at the air impact, if you look at a map of North Carolina in terms of um, airborne ammonia levels, there's sort of two big hot spots. One's Duplin County, which is famous for being sort of the hog center in North Carolina. The other one is actually our, our watershed, which is this largely rural area up in the foothills. That's um, this big ammonia hotspot because we have thousands of these chicken barns that are putting out hundreds of pounds of ammonia per day each. So you can imagine if you're living nearby, when you get the temperature inversion at night, it just sort of sits down on people's houses, and there's sort of this cloud of fumes that um, people, you know, say sort of just gets into your house and you can't really get away from. People um, who have respiratory problems can find those are inflamed by high elevated ammonia levels. Um, so they're typically dangerous for young kids, people with asthma, and older folks. Um, you know, in, in addition, you know, for us as, as water keepers, the concern is that this is one of the largest sources of nutrients. So this is essentially uh, a huge amount of fertilizer that's being generated in the watershed every year, and the disposal of it is not really tracked or regulated. So when we look at models, we think this is probably uh, a source of nutrient overload equivalent to the large cities that we have in our watershed. So when we look at, um, you know, our, our lakes downstream, that have high levels of algae, um, you know, potentially toxic in some cases, what we call blue-green algae. Um, that's caused by just essentially dumping all this fertilizer in the river that grows all this algae downstream. I spoke with Will Hendrick, staff attorney with Waterkeeper Alliance and the manager of their Pure Farms, Pure Waters campaign in North Carolina. I wanted to know whether people living next to these poultry facilities had any legal remedies they might pursue in order to be made whole. If they were expecting courts or elected officials to come to their rescue, Mr. Hendrick had a pretty sobering assessment. Traditionally, the legal remedy would be to bring a suit under what's called nuisance law. Uh, and that law actually predates uh, North Carolina's existence as even a colony. It goes back to old England. Uh, and there was a case actually involving hog uh, production. And the court there said, well, hog production should not occur in such a way as to unreasonably interfere with the neighbor's use of their home, their property. And so what came out of that case was this body of nuisance law, recognizing that if your neighbor unreasonably interferes with your use or your enjoyment of your home, uh, then they're liable to you under the law. Uh, and they have to, to pay to make you whole uh, and to remedy the harm that they've caused. And that was the state of the law for centuries until 2017 and just this summer the North Carolina General Assembly reduced the legal recovery available under nuisance law specifically 
for victims of nuisance caused by animal agricultural operations. So what for hundreds of years would have been your clear path to the court, uh, now you have a, a, a much more winding road if you want to, to remedy these problems, if you want the, the courts to help you out. Uh, and that only increases the importance of the state agency doing its job to limit pollution and impacts. Because if an individual can't rely on the courts, then it ought to be able to rely on the executive. There is some good news. Uh, yeah, so we're working on projects with NC State and UNC um, that have a genetic markers and also um, uh, nitrogen profiles that are specific to poultry. So you can actually say these nutrients are not coming from deers or bears or even cattle. It, this is coming from chickens. And so we'll be releasing that sometime next year. Perhaps compiling more and more evidence of how harmful these facilities are will be enough to tip the scales for lawmakers who currently remain loath to rein in the industry. In the meantime, the residents of Surrey County and other areas in the southeast where these facilities continue to appear are on their own and finding it more and more difficult to escape. I had a, a, a person, a local person, approach me about buying my house before I put it on the market. And he knew about the chicken houses. And so I didn't, didn't have any problem talking to him or anything like that. Anyway, we agreed to sell my house to him, and we agreed on a price. Shook hands. Well, the night I told you we had that uh, gathering where the smell was so bad, he happened to be around my house that night. They went coon hunting that night. And, of course, when you're coon hunting, you're running through the woods with a flashlight. Well, I hadn't heard from him for about two or three days. Uh, last time I talked to him, he was going to contact the bank and get right back to me. But I, I, I hadn't heard from him for about two or three days. I'm kind of wondering in the back of my mind what's going on. So I saw he and his wife had come and looked at my house. I, I'd given them permission to walk through it. And Anyway, he and his wife drove down past my house, down the driveway and on down to the fields down below. And when they came back up, they pulled up into the driveway. I'm standing there, and uh, his wife was crying. I thought, this can't be good. <laughs> you know, I stopped and said, Jerry, I can't buy your house. But <laughs> uh, he, said, he said, I'm sorry. He said, I've got two girls that's asthma. And I was out here the other night when it was so bad and we was coon hunting. I didn't realize it was going to be like this. He said, I can't buy it. I can't do it. Um, of course, you know, what could you say? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I told him I was disappointed, but I understood. Uh, to Mike Linto for helping to package that segment. Uh, just an update. Mr. Marshall was eventually able to sell his house uh, about a month ago. Unfortunately, he took a pretty big hit on the price, uh, and it, it took him quite a while to do that. Um, stay tuned for our next segment. We have Upper Noose Riverkeeper Matthew Starr in the studio to talk a little more turkey. Matthew, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the barriers to uh, change and changes in policy. Uh, you are listening to The Dirt on WSHAFM with expanded services on 1021 in Rocky Mount and 1023 in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Find us on iTunes and on Twitter at The Dirt FM. We will be right back. 
Welcome back. I am here with Matthew Starr, Upper Noose Riverkeeper, to talk a little bit more about the poultry and swine CAFO problem that we heard a little bit about in the first segment. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that Will Hendrick from Waterkeeper Alliance mentioned in the in the package that we played for you was a bill that passed over the summer called House Bill 467. Uh, I think it's also called the Agriculture, Agriculture Nuisance Bill. bill. Yes. Yes. And it is an anti-nuisance uh, piece of legislation. Uh, Will described it pretty aptly. It, it limits the ability of people to um, sue you know, these huge agricultural operations for smells and other nuisances that are coming off of their, their land and, and interfering with their use of the property. Uh, it's it's a, the kind of bill that has been passed in every state. Um, and in many cases, uh, ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which if any listeners are aware of who they are, uh, is responsible for a lot of these kinds of uh, bills that are passed everywhere all at once, usually favoring their corporate donors. You can Google them if you want to learn more about ALEC. But I want to talk a little bit about that money in politics and that influence because, you know, when people are looking to their lawmakers to come to their rescue uh, to to help create a balance and to help them um, find some sort of accountability against these, you know, big industries and corporations – their elected representatives ought to be the ones helping them out, and they're not in North Carolina when it comes to big ag. Why is that? Yeah, so let's let's pull the curtain back on this a little bit and talk about why some of these bills may be passing. And the underlining theme here is money. Uh, according to a recent article by the Indy Week, House Republicans who sponsored the ag nuisance bill have received more than 200 and $72,000 in campaign contributions from the industry. Wow. Yeah, that's, that, I mean, so you're, you're literally buying your bill here. <clears throat> Representative Jimmy Dixon, whose uh, primary area is, is Wayne County, eastern North Carolina. He, he was, a, lot of, a lot of hog farms. A lot, of hog, a lot of poultry as well. And he was the primary sponsor and head defender of this bill and spoke in favor of it time and time again spoke in favor of, of removing the ability that citizens of North Carolina have had have have had for quite some time um, and Dick represent Dixon alone has received over has received hundred and fifteen thousand dollars from the industry he's received over thirty six thousand dollars from people associated with Murphy Brown which is a, a large um, player in the swine industry, and has received nine thousand five hundred dollars from the pork council, which is the the legislative lobbying arm of the pork industry. This is not—I mean, that's not small money when you're talking about one. This is a part-time legislature, correct? And you know, and, and it is just a—it's a state lawmaker well, it's supposed to be part-time. Supposed legislator. to be, yeah. I know they keep yeah. coming back. Uh, but you know, so that's a that's a massive amount of money, and that's just to one guy. Yes, yes, that's that, that's to one person. I mean, what what you have here is an industry that is proven to harm North Carolina's water resources. It's proven to be a nuisance to the surrounding communities, and what they've done is bought this legislation so that that citizens throughout North Carolina lose a legal resource. 
I, I mean, it's ridiculous. And I, I, I looked into it a little bit specifically with the poultry angle. Uh, the North Carolina Poultry Federation, you know, like all of these industry groups, gave uh, a fairly substantial amount of money to a variety of different candidates in the 2016 election cycle. Uh, as far as their legislative candidates, of the ones who are still in office, every single one that received money from the Poultry Federation voted in favor of this House Bill 467. A couple of them, uh, Brent Jackson and and, uh, and Jimmy Dixon, sponsored uh, the yeah. legislation. So, uh, and, and you know, Brent Jackson's received over one hundred and thirty thousand um, dollars, and and the Poultry Federation is is very similar to the Poor Council. It's it's the the policy lobbying, uh, you know, giving financial contributions to elected members. So so that so that this harmful industry to North Carolina's waterways continues to have a barrier uh, to being held responsible. And we should say when they when they when they passed this, they attempted to interfere with ongoing legisl- or ongoing lawsuits Correct. related to this nuisance. So it's so it's I mean it could not be more transparently doing the bidding of the industry that has just given you a bunch of money. And everyone should check out the series on Indie Week that you referenced by Erica Hellerstein. It's uh, called Hogwash. It's a three-part series. I think it was featured in The Guardian as well. It digs really deep into this big agriculture problem when it comes to CAFOs and, and limiting the ability of just regular folks uh, to to find accountability and enjoy their property. Yeah, and, and in fact, during one of the committee meetings, um, when asked why the legislature was strictly looking at the nuisance law, it was because that was the law that these citizens used. So right. they were directly going after what the citizens were using. Right. It's outrageous. Um, thank you, Matthew. We're going to turn now to energy efficiency and environmental justice, more environmental justice. North Carolina Conservation Network's Brittany Irie sat down with Kaji Reyes from North Carolina League of Conservation Voters Power Up Campaign. Here's what he had to say. So I'm here today with Kaji Reyes-Hortez with the North Carolina League of Conservation Voters Power Up Campaign. Thank you so much for coming out today to chat with us. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So first things first, power up. Um, That's linking energy efficiency with environmental justice. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about the Power Up Campaign and what you guys are doing here in Raleigh. Awesome. Um, Yeah. So power up is kind of related to powering people up. Uh, kind of community organizing, grassroots style, door knocking, lots of conversations about um, what folks in Raleigh are experiencing. But specifically for us, we've been focusing on Southeast Raleigh Mm -hmm. because we know that there is a slated development happening there for the city. There's a lot. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there's a lot happening there. So um, just thinking about uh, we went out what was it, a year and a half, two years ago now, and did a large participatory action research where we had many, many conversations with folks across different issues around water, health, transit, housing, um, food, energy. Uh, Yeah, I feel like I'm missing one. Yeah, Yeah, but uh, we had, you know, folks pick what issues that they wanted to talk about and just really uh, went into dialogue about what it means that uh, folks have access or not have access to. And the major things that came up were um, affordable housing, mm-hmm. jobs, and people's utility bills being, or energy bills being really high. 
And so that's kind of how we focused in on what we would work on is what folks told us. So we reported back to uh, the community uh, about what they shared with us because mm -hmm. we think it's really important that yeah. the conversation happens both ways. So um, we let them know that, hey, these were the top three things that uh, folks were talking about as major concerns and issues that they had. Um, so through the power up uh, uh, idea of a vision of a, a different kind of development for Raleigh, mm -hmm. uh, we see Raleigh as, you know, it's a, it's a city that's growing really, really fast. And uh, development is popping up everywhere. And if development actually isn't focused on through a justice lens and an environmental justice lens as well, that um, what ends up happening is, you know, displacement and gentrification. So what is um, this people first development and how does that kind of play into green jobs? How do they play together and, and what does that mean? Yeah, so uh, we look at a people first development looking at specifically if development doesn't have the words sustainable mm -hmm. or equitable uh, with development that they're not being looked at and focused on. And those things need to really be brought out and sustainable having kind of two different uh, definitions. One is like, how do we develop in a way that's environmentally uh, responsible? And how do we sustain the folks who have been here for a long time mm -hmm. in the city? Because uh, we know that, you know, with development happens, rental units become really, really unaffordable. The housing crisis is, I mean, it's rampant all over the U.S. And right. so Raleigh is not exempt of that. So how do we sustain people's lives here? Mm -hmm. uh, the equitable part is what smart strategies are are we looking at to uh, develop in a way that creates more access for folks? So thinking about if you're going to develop in a way that's equitable, how do you create for us like green jobs? Like, you know, is there a way to um, get folks trained up who don't usually have access to good paying jobs? Mm -hmm. Uh, in a career, in a green green career pathway towards uh, being able to be economically, like, mobile. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, so with energy efficiency, what kind of tips are y'all giving to folks, and how does that help bring down their energy bills or their energy costs? Yeah, so we had a large DIY... Uh, energy efficient block party and a lot of people oh, are like oh you know energy efficiency not the sexiest subject right <laughs> <laughs> but um we made it really fun and interactive and so we had a big block party at chavis park and we set up a bunch of booths where we taught folks how to do uh diy do it yourself like energy things to their own That's space awesome. to um save on energy and so we also gave out the materials to do that so each person would practice you know one was like uh how what is the proper way to caulk and what do you caulk mm -hmm. uh foaming you know creating um uh what is it the little the the door stopper pieces yes. that you know the big gaps in the old houses to push up against the doors to you know create law to help with the, the loss mm -hmm. of uh, heating or air. And then also cutting out, we told people to bring all their air filters and, you know, we cut out 
reusable air filters for them to use. And then we gave away magnets with reminders that you could put up on your fridge. Here are five different ways that you could save on energy without having to um, purchase material. And what would be like the, the number one kind of thing that you would recommend if you had to pick, I guess, just one tip that would really help folks? What would that be? I think the uh, energy-efficient light bulbs, you know, that seems really simple, but we gave out a ton of those. And when we went back and canvassed the neighborhoods as well, some people were like, hey, I remember you. I remember that block party. Do you have any more of those light bulbs? I put them all over my house. I saved like $90, which when you talk about savings, like it's a big deal to underpaid families in Raleigh to save $90 because that's like sometimes the choice between do I leave the lights on, pay the bill, or do I purchase food? That's great. Uh, do you guys have like a website or somewhere where folks could go to to see what events you might have coming up or maybe some of these tips that you've talked about? Yeah, we have a Facebook page called Power Up NC. That's great. So you can look us up there. <laughs> we also, there. <laughs> yeah. And um, on the, the NCLCVF website, Foundation, that's us, Power Up. You can look us up there, but more of what is happening on a day-to-day basis is going to be seen through the Facebook page. Okay, so Facebook page is probably the main spot. And then could you repeat that last one um, just one more time, the um, NCLCVF, is that right? Yeah, .org. .org, okay, perfect. So what does a sustainable equitable uh, equitable campaign um, look like for y'all? So uh, there's a couple of pieces. So one is uh, truly affordable housing that is energy efficient. That's kind of two pieces in there. Um, That they be also rental units because we know that there's a need for more rental, truly affordable housing because our folks that we're talking to can't afford to purchase. Uh, We're also looking at the green jobs career pathway being an important piece to create, um, you know, economic mobility for folks and that the city also make a commitment to 100% renewable energy that starts with city-owned buildings first Mm -hmm. and hopefully by the time that that gets situated and and comes about people coming out of the green jobs career pathway would be filling those positions. Um, So Right now, um, Duke Energy is asking folks um, to raise rates across the state, um, and they've spent. You guys have spent a lot of time helping families lower their bills, and if they get their way, Duke, um, they could see a roughly fifteen percent increase in their energy bills um, every month, which is a lot. Um, and I'd love to hear um, kind of criminal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what would you say to the Utilities Commission, who's going to have to approve or deny this request? I would say, looking at underpaid families across Raleigh really should focus on like housing is becoming truly, truly unaffordable Mm -hmm. and even affordable housing. We don't say affordable housing. We say truly affordable housing because if you look at the area median income is what they go by 80%, which is around 46, 41,000 is 80% in wake. Um, In Southeast Raleigh per capita in 2014, when the city did their study, folks were making less than $9,000 a year. So I really would would, um, urge decision makers to really pay attention to the fact that 15% to folks that make less than $9,000 a year is is just way above their means. Good answer. Um, 
So we mentioned again just the, the websites that folks can go to, but I just want to hit on those again. So it would be Facebook, the Power Up campaign. Is that correct if they search for that? Power Up NC. Power Up NC, okay. Mm-hmm. And then um, is there another website, the nclcvf.org is a great one. Mm-hmm. But is there anywhere else folks um, can look at, or are those the two kind of best spots? Those are the best spots. We also okay. have an Instagram that is Power Up NC as well. That's so great. it's the same name, Instagram. Um, we are definitely um, sharing out different city council meetings that will be showing up and urging folks across Raleigh to come out and speak uh, about a importance of sustainable and equitable development. Well, this is a lot of really great work, and I think um, folks should definitely be listening and, and helping out and volunteering and doing whatever they can to help out. So I agree. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for coming today. And thank you to Brittany and Kaji for that interview and a lot of great information. Uh, One thing that they mentioned was the Utilities Commission. Duke is uh, currently asking the Utilities Commission to raise rates on uh, North Carolina residents across the state. And there are hearings ongoing today, in fact, I think probably through Friday, in which there is testimony. The Attorney General's office is asking Duke officials uh, different questions. There are a lot of people providing a lot of different evidence. Um, Duke is trying to build up a case for uh, to justify its ask. And uh, there are some surprising tidbits in some of the things that are coming out of the hearings today as we speak. And uh, Matthew, you may have heard of some of these, um, but, but one, one really interesting thing involves the uh, bottled water that Duke has been providing to residents located near Duke coal ash basins whose groundwater wells are, uh, drinking water wells are contaminated Basins is a very nice word for for a toxic pit. Sure, thank yes. The, the, you're the, right. These are unlined holes in the ground that that contain uh, cancer causing substances that that are polluting the groundwater. And Duke is asking for upwards of two hundred million dollars in this rate increase ask to pay for man the way that they've managed their mm-hmm. coal ash basins, ponds, toxic waste sites, whatever you want to refer to them as, um, which is outrageous as it In is. Itself. Right, yeah. sure, because it, it has been so clearly mismanaged um, for so many years. And uh, because of that mismanagement, uh, we think some of the groundwater around some of these basins has been contaminated. They've been providing bottled water to people. And now they're asking for North Carolina ratepayers, some of these same citizens. people. Citizens. Yeah, Every, Car- yeah, you get your power from Duke Energy, which most of us do because they have a monopoly in right, North Carolina. Now they want to be repaid for the cost of the bottled water they've had to provide people who have had no running water for nearly a 1,000 days at this point. We will be at the 1,000th day in January. Um, pretty outrageous stuff that came out in the hearing today uh, mm-hmm. that, they, that they are actually requesting to be repaid for the cost of the bottled water. Uh, I think when people find yeah. out about that, there's it, going to be a lot of It's pretty appalling because you hear these commercials about how Duke Energy wants to be a good neighbor, how, how Duke Energy wants to help North Carolina. Well, Duke Energy wants all of us to pay for their mistakes. That's infuriating in and of itself. But then to ask for every citizen who receives power from Duke Energy to help pay for them to supply these families with contaminated well water 
for bottled water. I mean, it, it's truly it, mind blowing. It really is twisted. Like, yes. It's pretty twisted. And, you know, what can you say? Another thing that I'm hearing was coming out of, of the proceedings today is uh, the attorney general's office. And, and next segment, by the way, we're, we're going to play part of an interview that we had with North Carolina attorney general, Josh Stein. He's, uh, his office is prosecuting part of this case and they put the screws to, to Duke officials today. And we're asking them some really tough questions in the hearings related to this rate case. And one of them was, Hey Duke, when did you know that groundwater was being potentially being contaminated? Uh, and uh, from what I'm hearing uh, on the stand, the uh, Duke official didn't know, had no, had no answer to that. Um, and then the attorney general's office pulled out a piece of paper. It, it looks like a document from Diener, formerly uh, what is now known as Department of Environmental Quality, from 1991 that indicates that they may have or probably should have known about groundwater contamination from their coal ash basins way back then. So there's a lot happening. It's all in flux right now. We talked about it a little bit. This segment, we'll talk about it a little bit in the next segment and definitely in the future. Everybody pay attention to this because this is, I mean, this impacts literally everyone because, as you said, Duke's yeah. a monopoly. Uh, okay, so we're going to go to that interview in just a few minutes. We're going to take a break right now. This is The Dirt on WSHA-FM. You are listening to The Dirt. We are headed into the final segment of the show today. I want to thank you all for sticking around and listening we interviewed North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein last month. He had a lot to say about a lot of different issues. As I referenced earlier, one of those issues is Duke Energy and their ongoing uh, rate cases at the North Carolina Utilities Commission. He talked a little bit about that. He talked a little bit about Gen X contamination in the Cape Fear River and possibly elsewhere. So I'm going to play a little bit of that interview for you now. Enjoy. Your office launched a civil investigation into Kimworks over the summer uh, related to the discharges of a chemical compound called Gen X into the Cape Fear River. Gen X, uh, for listeners who don't know, is used in the production of Teflon and other water-resistant products. So it's the kind of thing that doesn't break down easily in water. Uh, I think, in fact, it takes hundreds of years. It's difficult to filter out of drinking water. So folks in Wilmington and elsewhere up and down the Cape Fear uh, we're finding this turning up in their tap water. Uh, I would, I'd like to know from you what the, the scope and the legal basis for your investigation is right now. Well, there are two ways in which my office is involved in this matter involving chemors and the discharge of the chemical Gen X. Uh, the first is we represent the Department of Environmental Quality. And DEQ, as it is known, is the regulator that issues permits, including the discharge permit that the company had to discharge its waste into the Cape Fear River. The uh, DEQ was concerned that representations that the company made in its application for that permit were, uh, were not being followed and that they were actually discharging chemicals that were not represented in that permit. And so we have achieved a um, partial consent order in which, while the litigation is ongoing, Kimors, uh, the company, has agreed that they will not discharge Gen X or other similar potentially dangerous chemicals. Secondly, my office also represents consumers, the consuming public. And 
the company has made a number of representations about the sustainability of this chemical. And uh, what we want to make sure is that they have the evidence, the scientific evidence, to back up the representations that this is a, a safe and sustainable chemical. Uh, and we are engaged in that work as well. So has Kimwars been responsive so far? How is that? How would you characterize how cooperative they've been so far? They have been cooperative. Okay. We've made a number of document requests, uh, and they've been responsive in getting us things on, our, on a rolling basis, meaning that as they have them, they provide them. Uh, and uh, we worked out that consent agreement, uh, partial consent agreement, at, uh, right before a hearing before a judge a few weeks ago, in which they consented, they agreed, they wouldn't do any more discharge. And so, uh, you know, we have fundamental differences about the potential risk of these chemicals from the company, but uh, they have been cooperative in, in being uh, a good corporate citizen in terms of responding to what we demand of them. And you're requesting information about Gen X and also C8, from what I understand. Is that true? Because we right. know a little bit more about C8, correct? And there are other uh, chlorocarbon, uh, or chlor <laughs> you know the chemical term better than I do. Um, but there are other uh, chemicals related to C8 and Gen X, uh, which are also potentially at risk. And so that's what we've asked them for information on all of those chemicals. To what extent, so Kimors is a, is a spinoff from DuPont mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. Uh, to, to what extent does this extend to DuPont? Are you interacting with DuPont? Are they being responsive? What's that relationship like, if any? Uh, to my knowledge, we haven't been engaged with DuPont because Kimors is the keeper of all that information and has been sharing it with us. Uh, I, I think that at this point it's premature to look at whether there's any um, liability for DuPont. Our, our primary concern with all of the work that we're doing here is to ensure that when people turn on their tap and put their glass under that to get drinking water, that they're confident that it's clean, that it's safe, that they can drink it and their children won't be sick or affected by it. Uh, that's a pretty basic need that everybody uh, is entitled to. And we're trying to make sure that when people do that, that they do have that confidence. Speaking of confidence, people in communities along the Cape Fear, I mean, we, we know that there's been a lot of concern in Wilmington. There have been these huge community forums, hundreds of people showing up to learn about this stuff. More recently, there have been people in the, in the Fayetteville area and in the area around the Kimors site uh, that have had contaminated well water. And uh, there was a notice put out by your office last week or the week before related to mailings that have gone out to sure. some of the... Uh, the folks who are in in these areas, uh, what what is that about? What what's going on here? It is very common when something big happens, whether it's a storm or in this case a, a, a chemical in the in the drinking water, that companies will come out of the woodwork and knock on doors and try to play on people's fear. Uh, it may be that there's storm damage and a tree's leaning on your house and somebody will say, let me go up on your roof and take a look at your roof. And they'll come down with some rotten piece of wood that maybe they carried up there with them and said, oh, you need to get this tree off and we need to replace your roof and it'll cost $40,000 and you need to do it now because I've got six other jobs and if you want to lock me in, you got to do it right now. And so they play on fear and they play on urgency. And so it doesn't surprise me that companies have been mailing these postcards. They're going to say, I'm going to come to your door. I will test your water in your home. 
and uh, if you if we determine that it's unsafe, I've got a filtration system or a chemical system that I will sell you, and it'll make all your problems go away. And people should be very dubious of those types of claims. Uh, in home testing is inherently unreliable. You don't know what food coloring they put in the water to make it turn a certain color, and uh, a, a filtration system at home isn't the way to deal with this issue of Gen X. So uh, our our recommendation to for people is to be very cautious whenever anybody comes to your door to tell you about a problem that you have that only they can fix. And by the way, you got to fix it right now. It makes sense. Are you actively investigating these things or are you just kind of keeping an eye on, you know, reports of, of these kinds of things coming in? It's the latter. Okay. We've gotten notice that some of these mailings have gone out. We've heard from a number of people in the area and that's why we did the um, warning to consumers. And if we find out that companies are in fact selling people useless products then obviously we'll, we'll take action at that point uh that brings me to another thing because you have a a long history of being a, a consumer advocate i think that's a, a huge part of your story um, before you were in the legislature you were uh working consumer protection stuff at the north carolina department of justice uh as you know duke energy progress is asking the north carolina utilities commission to approve a rate hike it's 477 million dollars I think an average residential customer is going to see bills increase around $18, which averages up to $122 a month. Um, in part, Duke is saying that this is to pay costs for um, coal ash, cleaning up coal ash. DOJ is intervening in this case. I am wondering how your experience as an advocate for consumer protection kind of shapes your approach to this proposed rate hike uh, from Duke. Well, everybody needs electricity. When we turn on the light switch, we expect the light to come on. Uh, we need heating and air. We need refrigeration. We all benefit from electricity, and Duke provides that electricity and uh, needs to be paid in a legitimate amount for whatever uh, service they provide. They have sought a very high rate increase, about 14 15%. Uh, some of it has to do with improvements they want to make to the grid, and as you note, some of it has to do with cleaning up of the coal ash. Well, the coal ash piece, uh, the question I have is, we have to clean up this mess that exists today, and there are you know, these 14 sites around the state, uh, many more ponds, just massive, massive amounts of coal ash. Uh, were they reasonably reasonable and prudent in the decisions they've made over the last number of years in how they've dealt with it to this point. Um, because if they haven't been, then they're not entitled to getting the full uh, reimbursement of whatever costs they incur today to clean it up. So that's what our my job is, is I want to make sure that when Duke asks for a rate case for cleaning up coal ash or even the work they want to do on the grid, are they seeking reasonable and prudent uh, measures? If they're not, my job and what I believe is my uh, essential mission here is to make sure that the consumers don't pay a dime more than they are obligated to because Duke has a monopoly. And when you're dealing with a monopoly, it's important that the state look out for the consumers. Uh, beyond coal ash, uh, I'm wondering if your office has any kind of environmental justice specific strategy or plan or conversations taking place I'm wondering what the conversation around environmental justice looks like in your DOJ. Well, we're 
very concerned about uh, look my job as attorney general is to protect the people of the state and that includes protecting their drinking water protecting the air that they breathe and we pursue that mission in a number of different ways we've already talked about Kim Wars and the Gen X case we've talked about Duke and the rates and the coal ash case um, there are a number of things happening in Washington such as the, the president is trying to abandon the clean power plan, and I am intervening in that to ensure that we do everything we can to address carbon emissions, reduce our carbon emissions so that we're not making a problem of increased climate change worse. Uh, similarly, when, he, when the president came out against the Paris Climate Accord, uh, I spoke out in, in opposition to his decision. So... Uh, there's a lot of things that we do. It's all under the umbrella of looking out for the people of the state and whether it's dealing, trying to protect consumers at Camores or, uh, you know, another thing that the Trump administration has done is petition FERC, which is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the federal regulators, trying to get a subsidy for coal, which makes no sense on two levels. One is it'll mean that consumers actually pay more for their electricity in order to burn more carbon, which will worsen climate change and all this erratic weather that we've been experiencing. So it, that's another instance where I'm looking out for consumers and I'm looking out for the general public. So in that case, we have to talk about the budget uh, because there's a lot that you want to do. Um, and over the summer, the legislature made massive surprise cuts to uh, your budget, $10 million. There have been 45 positions cut, I think. Um, to say it's draconian, I think, would be an understatement. The reaction has been harsh. Uh, what is at stake with these cuts? What do you need going forward to protect the consumers that you're talking about and the people in North Carolina? Well, you are correct. The legislature imposed a, a drastic $10 million cut, and it was not in the House budget. It was not in the Senate budget. They put it into the conference report the night before it was voted on, which, by the way, is contrary to the legislature's own rules. Um, so it was snuck in at the last minute. And it has real impacts on our ability to do work. We lost 45 positions. This included lawyers with experience handling criminal appeals of convicted child sex offenders, uh, lawyers from uh, relevant to the environment, lawyers experienced with protecting clean water, uh, other lawyers who make sure that kids get the child support they're entitled to under the law. Uh, and we lost a lot of people who do a lot of good work for the citizens of North Carolina. We have tried to mitigate the impact as best we could. We negotiated with a lot of the client agencies we represent to uh, encourage them to put the lawyers who work for the DOJ on receipt support, meaning that the agencies would actually pay for their salaries as they continue to do their work. And a lot of agencies uh, under both Republican Council of State members and Democratic cabinets stepped up in a way that was very encouraging. So. It's concerning. Uh, you know, re the Republican former Supreme Court Justice Bob Orr said that these cuts threaten the critical work of the Attorney General's office. Uh, WREL did an uh, editorial in which they said it was going to hurt thousands of North Carolinians. Yeah, it's real, and we're just trying to manage it as best we can. And it's not just money. Uh, was last week, a week before, maybe it was earlier in the month, I suppose, uh, they slipped a measure into a bill that would prohibit you from shifting some appellate work to local district attorney's offices. That's right. Uh, so the legislative bodies, they're trying to micromanage the attorney general here as well. And 
it's a part-time legislature, they say, but they keep coming back special session after special session for this kind of stuff. So I feel like we're veering into separation of powers issues. Um, and, and I'm wondering from you how appropriate that is, what impact at the, at the district court level this is going to have, what law enforcement groups are saying, what are DAs sure. telling you um, as you're, you know, going further into the year? Well, when, when the cuts were first announced and then when we announced the extent of the, the cuts, the, the, the reductions in force were going to be, in both instances, the Association of District Attorneys, the sheriffs, and the chiefs of police were all arm-in-arm arm with us because they understand the public safety concern uh, by the, the, the consequences of these cuts. And the legislature imposed the cuts, and then in a number of ways they restricted my ability to manage them internally. But even within those constraints, they're now trying to tie my hands further. And, uh, you know, the, the North Carolina Constitution declares that district attorneys shall do whatever I ask of them in handling of criminal appeals. And so the Constitution is pretty clear on this matter. Okay, thank you once again to the Attorney General for sitting down with us and, and talking on, on so many things. Uh, we have a few minutes left in the show today, and we talked about a lot of scary things, a lot of bad things. And I want to end on a really positive note because there's really good news uh, coming out of Raleigh and the Upper Noose River this week. Matthew, the noose is free. Yeah, so this is a pretty monumental time in the history of the Noose River. Uh, for over 100 years, the Millburney Dam has stood in place on the main stem of the noose just outside of Raleigh, and the dam is now gone, which is a big, big, big success on three fronts. One, it's great for the environment. It really is. Natural, free-flowing rivers are what rivers are supposed to be, and the noose is completely undammed except for Falls Lake Dam, which is not going anywhere <laughs> because it supplies uh, over 500,000 people with drinking water. But after that, the noose is undammed for 248 miles east, which wow. is astonishing. So a great win for the environment. It's great for recreation. The, with the dam being gone, there's now a new little set of rapids there on the noose for kayakers, for canoers, for paddleboarders, for uh, fishermen. And maybe most importantly, it's a great win for public safety. There's been a number of drownings at this dam over the years, and now that threat has been removed. So this is a, a monumental, um, important thing that has happened for the Noose River. It's, it's being removed by a fantastic partner in restoration systems. Um, it, it, this, the removal just has broad support, and, it, and it's really nice to be able to talk about something that's it's very positive for water quality and s instead of um, what, we've, what we've spent the last little bit talking about. Right. No, that's huge. And it's going to allow a lot of fish to come up and spawn in northern Wake County that haven't been able to do that in a long time. Like you said, the yeah. kayakers, people enjoying the river. It's fantastic news. I can't wait to get out there. Um, but we are out of time now. Uh, this has been The Dirt with Brian Powell. I want to thank our many guests for their contributions to the program. Thank you to Conservation Network's Mike Linto for producing a lot of the packages that we played for us today. A uh, huge thank you to our in-studio producer, Jessica Graham, and the rest of WSHA's production team. 
Join us again every fourth Tuesday of the month at 12 noon on WSHA-FM and on iTunes and SoundCloud a couple of days after that. Find us on Twitter at The Dirt FM, and it's Giving Tuesday, so give to WSHA, give to Conservation Network, and give to Sound Rivers, uh, which is Matthew Sarge Group. All of these folks are doing really, really, really great work trying to uh, provide great services and community services and protection of the environment. So go out and give. Thanks, y'all.